0: Take my title from Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The word preeminence means to hold first place. It is the fact of being surpassing in value over all. Now when we think of holding first place, perhaps the most immediate thing that comes to mind is a a sporting team, maybe. This fall, that has a preseason poll of holding first place, and then everybody waits to see at the end of the season if they're still holding that first place position. We try to rank everything. It's not just sports. We rank appliances. We want to know who the richest person on the planet is. We rank cars. We want to know what holds first place. And when I want to buy a product, I Google it to get the top ten. I want to know what's in the first place position. Not that I may be able to afford it. I just like to know what works. But when he comes to the preeminence of Christ, he holds first place. And no one is vying for that position. No one is in the same category. He's in a class all by himself. He's the uncreated God. And no one even approaches anywhere close to his rank, his supremacy, his surpassing value over all. But note that Paul says that he might have the preeminence. The word might have is one Greek word that means to show, to display, to exhibit, to demonstrate, or to communicate. All synonyms of that Greek word "ginomai," which means to become. Now what that doesn't mean is he is becoming or moving into first place position by improving like a football team would over the season and finally get there. No, what it means is the movement is on our behalf. He is in a place of supremacy. And when he's known and seen as such, more and more people display, show, and communicate his supremacy by the way that they live. In particular, the church, which is his body, that in everything as it relates to the church, he might have, show, display through the church that he holds sway, rank, and first place position. So, beginning in verse 12, we want to see how Paul, perhaps like no other place in the New Testament, unpacks the majesty and the supremacy of Christ in verse after verse, beginning in verse 12. So we want to see how does Paul tell us about his supremacy? And then lastly, how does the church actually make his supremacy known? We'll just try to end with that, depending on the time. Verse 12, in verses 7 through Uh, 11, Paul is praying on behalf of the church. He's not been to this church. He's heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus, their love to all the saints because of the hope laid up for them in heaven because they had heard the gospel truth which was bringing fruit in them as it should be with us. The gospel brings forth fruit. They had heard it. They believed it. They were converted. And now Paul begins to pray that this church would know more of the supremacy of Christ in God And then in verse 12, it's hard to tell where he transitions out of the prayer and into this exalted view of Christ because there's colon after colon after colon until we get to a period in verse 18. We'll begin in verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom, that's the Son, we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So Paul wants to start with the preeminence of Christ in redemption. We have redemption through His blood. And what has that redemption purchased? His blood purchased for us. First, that God would make us meet for the inheritance. It's an inheritance of the saints in light. Now, we think of inheritances, we think of money, goods, possessions, lands, houses, so forth. But here, interestingly, the inheritance is the saints in light. And you have to be equipped for the inheritance. Now, to be sure, the Bible says the inheritance shall be forever, Psalm 37, 28. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. This inheritance in Ephesians 1.18 is the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints. It is abundant. And in 1 Peter 1.4, the inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled, it doesn't fade, it doesn't lose its splendor, and it's reserved in heaven for you. Everything here decays, corrupts, and loses its splendor. It's like your car. You first buy it even if it's a used car. It's just wonderful. You look at all the gadgets and the things that you've never been exposed to and then lo and behold, just maybe a few months, a year, it loses its luster. And then the top coat peels and it just looks really wretched. Eventually, everything loses its luster but not your inheritance. It will never lose its splendor, its radiance, its luster. And you have been reserved as a believer for the inheritance. But Paul says in this redemption, Christ is preeminent because through his blood you have been made meet for the inheritance of the saints in light. What does it mean to be meet? It's an old English word that means to be fit for it, equipped or qualified. You have to be qualified for the inheritance. Now, when we think of qualifications, perhaps you think of a position or an activity or event or maybe a job that you want to apply for and you get out the job description, the qualifications and you begin to read and all of a sudden you get to one facet of the qualifications and you are unqualified. Maybe it's education, maybe it's experience, maybe it's something else. You don't have the qualifications. Now, it could be that you could get those qualifications, get a little experience, come back Get some more education and come back. Do what it takes to qualify. But here you're not just unqualified. You have been disqualified. You're like the athlete which took performance enhancing drugs, or maybe he just took drugs, and he's disqualified. In athletics, you may miss a game, two games a season, but this disqualification means eternity. You have done something wrong. Called sin, and you have come short of the glory of God. And for that, you deserve your place in the wrath of God, and so do I. But through the premise, uh, supremacy of Christ's redemption, God has qualified us, not by our performance, not by our works, not by anything that we do to qualify, but surely by His grace. He has qualified us and made us meet for the inheritance through the blood of Christ so that we can share in the inheritance of the saints that's in light. It's in light. Now what has decisively happened to the believer that brings about this redemptive qualification by grace that enables us to share and partake of the inheritance, both now and the one that's coming? Well, he's going to explain that in verse 13. Here's the parallel to that who, that is God, that we're giving thanks to continually, He has delivered or rescued us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. So the light of the inheritance is found in the kingdom of God's beloved Son, the Son that God loves. So we have to be translated from darkness and the power of darkness. Now we know that Paul is talking about the new birth because he says when we're translated, we're translated into the kingdom. And if you go to John 3:3, 3, 3, Jesus, using similar words, would say, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of his dear son, kingdom of God, here, all the same kingdom. All the same kingdom. Verily, verily I say unto you, except a man be born of the water, of water and the spirit, he cannot Enter into the kingdom. What kingdom? The kingdom of God's dear Son. So when the Bible is going to speak of the new birth, it will use different words to capture what happened to us. In Ephesians 2, it's like a resurrection from the dead because you were dead and He quickened. In 2 Corinthians 5, you're a new creation because you were created by God. Your spiritual life is a creation of God alone. And new birth because you need life a second time, much like you got it the first time in your first birth. You need a second birth. But here, Paul uses the word translated, which means to transfer, because he wants to emphasize a new dominion, a new master. Now, if you've ever been transferred to a new job or a new department, invariably it always means a new master, a new boss. That boss has authority over you. He or she can tell you what time to get to work, what time to go home, what time to take lunch, when to take a vacation and when not to. What your job description is, if you're doing a good job or if you're not doing a good job, as it relates to that work, they are master over you. And you come under that authority by a job transfer. You can see that language that Paul is using, the power, which means the authority of darkness, into the kingdom or the rule of Jesus Christ. The word power is exosia, which means authority. And the Bible it can be used of human authorities. Romans 13:1. The powers that be are ordained of God. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, plural. Authorities, same word in the plural. Why? For there is no power, singular, but of God. The powers that be plural are of God. They're ordained. He's ordained the structures of government and He's ordained every singular person that rules in the structure of that government according to Daniel 2.21. He changeth the times and seasons. He removes kings and sets them up. So powers, plural, means rulers, magistrates, from judges to kings to presidents to congress, to anybody that rules over people in a structure called government. But here, singular, it is satanic power. It is the devil. Now there's a lot of talk in our culture today about satanic worship. And we get a little bit unnerved about it. There's after school Satan club. Which if you read about it, it, is just a way for people to take a person, a thing rather, in the Bible and take it to counter Christianity. And they say so. They're just doing this to give a way of alternative to people who don't want anything to do with Christianity. So they want to put this diabolical figure in the wording of the club. And then you hear of famous people and clothing and objects and themes that seem to indicate Satanic worship, but I need to tell you, beloved, you were under satanic power yourself. Maybe someone here right now is still under satanic power. He's called the prince of the power, the air, the, the prince of the exousia of the air in Ephesians two. He's the ruler of the darkness of this world. There are rulers plural, Ephesians six twelve, but he's the ruler. He's the arch enemy. He's the chief among the demonic world. He is the power of darkness. He holds sway over the air. It's ubiquitous. Everywhere there's air, you find this satanic power ruling over the hearts of human beings. The whole world lieth under the power of the wicked one. 1 John chapter 5. And this is what God transfers us from through the redemptive blood of Christ from the authority of satanic dominion for which you were under or you are under at this moment into the kingdom or the rule or the authority of the preeminent Christ. This is where His preeminence begins. This is what equips us for the inheritance of the saints in light when God in a moment transfers you from this power into the kingdom of His dear Son. Now if you turn to Acts 26, we'll see where Paul specifically relates this word to Satan in a way that is very clear in case you are doubting, maybe, that that reference is to the devil. This is a verse we've looked at several times. Paul is in front of King Agrippa, he's in Jerusalem, and he recounts before Agrippa his conversion where Paul was under satanic power and rule as a religious man. And he was transferred from that power to the kingdom of his dear son, that's Jesus. And so Jesus speaks to him in verse 16 and tells Paul as he recounts his conversion. And we speak, we read of things here that we would not know in Acts chapter 9. But we find here in this account where Paul says, Jesus said in verse 16, "'Rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose.'" to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things into which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send you. And what is Paul to do? Everywhere Paul goes, he has this commission. From the ascended Christ, I'm sending you to the nations. This is what you're to do. Verse 18, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. The power of Satan to God. There's parallelism. The darkness answers to the power of Satan. So so what is the power of darkness in Colossians 1, 13? It's satanic dominion, satanic power, satanic rule. Exosia, authority. So Paul's going to open people's eyes so that they can what? See inheritance of the saints in light. You're not qualified until you see something. So Paul is going throughout the whole Roman world with the gospel to open the eyes of blind people who are under the dominion and the rule of Satan, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, should what? Shine unto them. So you have light, darkness, light, power of Satan, answers to darkness, power of God, answers to light. What is that? That's the kingdom of His dear Son. For what purpose? That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance, there's the inheritance, among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Now the next few verses tells us how Paul interprets that from Jesus. He went everywhere, preaching what? Repentance and turning to God. What did he do that with? the gospel. Now Colossians 1.13 says that God translates us from the power of darkness to the kingdom of His dear Son. Jesus says, Paul, you're going to do that. You're going to turn them from the power of darkness into the kingdom of, his, of God's dear Son. How does Paul do that with the gospel? Because the effectual call when we're translated is by regeneration and conversion. Without the gospel, what's the position of the eyes? Closed. What's the authority? Darkness. Who's ruling over that heart? The devil. Without the gospel. But if you've got the gospel with no translation from God, what do you have? Closed eyes. You need new life. You need new birth. You need to be translated. There needs to be a transfer that Jesus says is the new birth. So when God effectually calls us, He converts us, regenerates us, and then sanctifies us by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's how we marry the two together. You must have a new birth. And the gospel is what the Spirit uses when He gives us life to remove us from the darkness into the kingdom and the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were all under... Satanic dominion. Every person in this room, every person on the planet, and God, give Him thanks. If you're a believer, He has rescued you from the authority of darkness. And He's translated you into the kingdom of His dear Son. But what what is the experience of that? What do these metaphors mean, darkness and light? We know from Ephesians 2 that the, the prince of the power of the air and the darkness we were under was a darkness that mean, meant every moment of our existence. We used our minds, our hearts, our strength, our souls, our thoughts for one purpose, self-gratification. We were fulfilling the desires of the mind and of the flesh and were just like everybody else the children of wrath now paul distinctively tells us that's what it means in ephesians 2 to be under the authority of darkness we lived according to our own desires our own wants and whatever gratified me alone So what does it mean to be translated into the kingdom of His dear Son and see the light? It means now in a new sphere, a new realm, under the authority of King Jesus, we live for His glory and we experience the joy that can only be found in Him because we can see Him now by faith. We couldn't see Him, we were under demonic rule, but now that we see Him and know His supremacy... We see the glory of His grace and the redemption that He procured for us. And now we love Him in a similar way that God loves His own Son for what He did. Because it's the kingdom of the Son of His love is what that means. We love God, we love Christ now as God loves Christ. Not in the same way because we don't know Him yet like God knows Him. Everywhere in the Bible, when the metaphor of light is used, it is usually expressing many different things, but often it is expressing joy and being satisfied. Psalm 42, when David is in darkness, he's cast down in soul. He's praying to God and he says, O oh, send out thy light and truth. Let them... Lead me, let them bring me unto the holy hill of Zion, unto thy tabernacles, unto God my exceeding joy. What's David saying? I need light and I need truth. When I have light, the light of God's truth, which is in the tabernacles of God in Jerusalem, and He's far away from Jerusalem and He's downcast, when He has light and truth coming to Him, what is the experience? He's going to God... His exceeding joy by means of light. He can see God. He knows God. And he experiences God as joy. Psalm 36. When the psalmist speaks of the loving kindness of God, he would say, that's why the children of men put their faith under the shadow of your wings. Because of God's mercy, His loving kindness. What is the experience of God under His wings? They, they that come under the wing, shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. So under those wings there's a fat house. And it has much in it. And you shall make them drink from the rivers of your pleasures. In that house there's a a clear flowing crystal fountain. And it's abundant. And God's going to make you drink from it. How is He going to make you drink? And how is it that we can drink from that fountain forever? Next verse. For with thee is the fountain of life. God is like a fountain that never runs dry. So this fat house and this drinking of pleasure never ends. Why? He's the fountain of everlasting life. Next. In your light shall we see light. How's God going to make you drink? Like sometimes parents have to do with children when they make them eat. You know, you sort of introduce it into the mouth, kind of pushing it along the way. Or you you kind of gently take the head and make them drink sometimes. You ever gotten to that place where, I'm going to make you drink this. That's not how God makes you drink. In His light, you're going to see light. The light of the revelation of God, you're going to see God by that light. And what's the experience of the inheritance of the saints in light rescued from the authority of darkness translated into the kingdom of His love where that love is your delight. And back in Psalm 36, O continue thy loving kindness to those that know you by knowing the preeminence of Jesus Christ, and seeing Him by faith, we experience the delight. The same delight the Father has in the Son, because He loves Him, we begin to experience. Because His love is our delight, isn't it, church? It is. That's what equips you and qualifies you for the inheritance, because you have to be able to see the inheritance. Or you might do like some children, sell everything that was given to you. Just That doesn't mean anything to me. Give me the dough. See, with God, He causes you to see the beauty and the glory of the preeminence of Christ's redemption for you. His bloodshed for you. What do you do? You don't sell it. You keep it. And you enjoy it. Because it satisfies every need of your soul that is the Son. So, beloved, give thanks to God. That's a present participle. Give thanks because the supremacy of Christ means He is supreme in redemption because He actually rescues sinners. He's not a would-be Savior. He's not making it a potentiality. He does it. And He brings us out from under that satanic authority under the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the light of His presence. And then this is all because of what? In verse 14, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. See His supremacy and redemption. All, of this, all that the Father has done, all that the Father will do concerning your soul and your life, is owing to one thing, the ransom price. The word redemption here means the payment of a ransom to release the prisoner. You've been released from the bondage of the darkness you were in. Why? So that you, church, might give him, show him, communicate him as the one who is supreme in your life. That's the aim. He gave his blood. And you are forgiven. The one thing the power of darkness has or could have over you is unforgiven sin. That's the one thing He wants to accuse you with. That's the one thing He has in His arsenal that He can point to and say, let me tell you about their sin. But Christ has shed His blood. He has been made a propitiation by His blood received by faith. Romans 3, 24, 25. And we've been redeemed. And you just say, Redeemed and so happy in Jesus. Now either that's all sham—that's just big sham—and we just sing that whenever we do, and that, that's not true. Or we are happy in Jesus, the kind of happy that happiness that Jesus brings, not the world brings. No language my rapture can tell. I know that in the light of His presence with me doth He continually dwell. Light, presence, life. Joy, spiritual happiness. Why? His supremacy. Through the supremacy of His blood, He has brought redemption to you. Next, verse 15. Now Paul transitions to a more majestic view of Christ so that we know something about who this preeminent one is so that we can communicate, show Him somehow, through and in the church. Now His supremacy in creation. Who is, the who is the image of the invisible God? I'm in verse 15. The firstborn of every creature, for by Him were all things created. All right? Image is the Greek word icon, which we use the word icon, which is that little symbol on your computer screen that represents an application. When you click on it, you go to the application. Similarly, the word image here means He is the representation of God. God is invisible. God does not have a body. God the Son took on a body and became incarnate Christ. God is a spirit, John 4. When God is to be seen and to be known, we look at the Son. He is visible. He is the representation of God. Jesus said, Philip, when you've seen the Father, you've seen Me. So by representation or the image of God, he doesn't mean some representation that's close or near it. He means the exact imprint of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. He's the effulgence of His glory, the radiance of His glory, and He's the express image of His nature. He's an exact representation of the nature of God, And nature is a combination of qualities that define a person. So, what combination of qualities define God, for which Jesus is the express image of that nature? He's eternal. Christ is eternal. He's omnipotent. Christ is omnipotent. He's omniscient. Christ is omniscient. He's glorious. Christ is glorious. He's merciful and gracious. Christ is merciful and gracious. To be the image of the invisible God means He is God manifest in the flesh. Now some people trip up here with the next phrase that He's the firstborn of every creature because we usually take firstborn, which can mean this as birth order. The first child, the firstborn, then you got the next child and they were produced or they would say, that means Christ is created by God. That won't work for three reasons. And I'll, I'll go from, uh, from weakest to strongest maybe. Number one, the word firstborn also means in rank or supremacy, not in order. Psalm 89:27, speaking of Solomon, which is a type of Christ in Psalm 89, God said, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. The word higher means supreme. What does God mean by firstborn? He means He's going to rank highest, not birth order. And the word was often used that way as Paul is using it here. Second reason, verse 16, because by Him all things were created. You see the because there tells us how He's using the word firstborn. Why is He supreme, firstborn of every creature? Because He created every creature. And then thirdly, and Perhaps the strongest is if you created everything, how can you create yourself? Somebody says, well, it's saying God created him, then he created everything, but not according to John 1.3. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Christ is co-creator with God, and without him was not anything that was made, made. So if he's made, then without him, he wasn't made, which means he had to make himself. And Unless you're watching some science fiction movie where they can kind of make that happen, that is literally an impossibility. He is the firstborn of every creature because he's the eternal God that created everything that is made. Everything. And you can't make yourself, nor did he. He is the eternal God, the image of the invisible God. And now Paul is going to speak of His supremacy in verse 16 and 17. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and in earth. Heaven and the heaven of heavens in the universe. The worlds were framed by the Word of God. Hebrews 11.3 The worlds were made by God through Christ, Hebrews 1, 2. He has been appointed heir of everything because He's the Supreme One. I recently read, now we know, at least now, what the biggest star is. The last time I had reported in my limited knowledge it was Betelgeuse. Now it's U.I. Scooty. I think. Where they get these names, I have no idea. But it is said that almost 5 billion of our suns can fit in the sphere of that star. 5 billion. 1,300,000 earths can get into our sun. Let me ask you, what does that make you? Just to be very blunt, you are a big fat zero to God. You are nothing. You are undetectable. There's not a microscope that can find you. And yet, this Christ who created that star, as far as we know, that's the biggest. Which tells you what? It's not the biggest. It's not the biggest. I mean, that makes you dizzy to try to comprehend that. And here you are, a little finite being. And you think about man in his pride, snubbing his nose at Christ. I'm amazed that God would send His Son to bend down to something so small, so infinitesimal, as to be totally undetected except by the the razor-sharp eyesight of the Son of His love and the love of God to redeem sinners such as we are. He's created everything from the biggest star to the smallest dust mote to the smallest dust particles, and then of course next, visible and invisible things you can see, things you can't see. Whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, the most powerful country or nation, the man that's ever lived was created like a worm was created. You think about that, and we're afraid of a man the most powerful beings demonic beings were created by Christ the devil is god's devil he is and he is created for an aim and an end and god created it like he would the effort it would take to create an ant visible and invisible Atoms and subatomic particles created by Christ. It is said that there are seven octillion atoms in your body, which is seven with 27 zeros, and yet He created them all, and He is sustaining them all. Sustaining them all. Visible or invisible. This is the preeminence of Christ. All things were created by Him and for Him, and and He is before all things. By Him all things consist. That means... To be held together. Now, what Paul wants us not to fall into the trap of thinking is that Jesus is like a divine electrician and he wired the whole system of the universe and he went to the massive breaker box and flipped the switch and backed up and just kind of watches it go. No, this word says every moment, every molecule, every atom in your body, every subatomic particle, all the electrons moving through the cables of the universe to produce light are all under His sway right now. You don't breathe without Him. You don't blink your eyes without Christ. And if Christ removes His upholding sway because He upholds all things by the word of His power, Hebrews 1, then it all falls into oblivion in a moment. It disintegrates. And the word upholding in the Greek and Hebrews 1 it means Pharaoh to, to bear, to carry it forward. He is carrying everything forward to a crescendo where He will have the preeminence. And He will be known, He will be shown who the great potentate King of kings, Lord of lords is. The devils will know. They know now they will bow before His supremacy. He is preeminent, In creation, Paul will say, because He is verily God and He's created all things by Him, for Him, and everything is held together by the exalted Christ. That's the Christ who loves you and gave Himself for you. That's the Christ that you're secure in that nobody can touch you in terms of your eternal life. That's the Christ that you're hid in. All because of God's Sovereign mercy to sinners. And then verse 18, and we'll close out here. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in all things He might have the preeminence. Now I want to connect verse 16 with this verse. If He created all things for Himself, and He's the head over all things for the church, what are the implications of that? If He created everything for Himself, and He did, and that Christ is your head over the body, what are the implications of Him creating it for Himself? I'm going to suggest to you that all things were created for you. Do you believe that? What does it mean He created all things for Himself? And how does that relate to the head of the body? Because whatever He is, He's that for us. Revelation 4.11 says, He created everything for His pleasure. They are and were created. Thou art worthy to receive glory, honor, and power, for Thou hast created all things. For Thy pleasure they are and were created. What is the pleasure of Christ in creation? Psalm 19. It reflects His glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. He looks at creation and it is a reflection of His power and glory. And honor. That's what he finds pleasure in. In providence, he does everything for his pleasure. Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done, he is doing, whatever he pleases. Every moment, Christ, in ruling over the universe, is doing his pleasure. What is it that gives him pleasure in providence? Psalm 115, verse 1 not unto us, not unto us give glory, but unto thy name, thy mercy, and thy truth's sake. Wherefore now doth the heathen say, Where is thy God? Our God is in the heaven. He is doing His pleasure as it relates to His glory, His name, His mercy, and His truth. Everything is being carried forth to a grand demonstration. When Christ burst on the scene, and all His providence is serving the purpose of making you like Christ. So His providence is for you. His creation is for you because He gives you all things richly to enjoy. So when we joy it in the context of His headship to the body, it was created for Him, it's created for us. When it's used rightly to His glory. Providence is for us because it's moving toward the glorious crescendo of the exaltation of His name and making us like Jesus. And if we're made like Jesus, is that not for us? It is for us. But what about salvation? Ephesians 1.7 Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Himself, to Himself, by Jesus Christ, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Whether it's creation, providence, or salvation, it's for His pleasure. The pleasure of the glorious grace of God. according to His good pleasure, and that pleasure is the praise of His glory. So in saving us, in salvation, salvation is for Him. In what way? He gets the praise and the glory, but it's also for us, because we get the salvation, and we get to praise Him. So when Christ created everything for Himself, it's not independently for Himself, it is for the body which is His church. Which leads us to understand how it is we give him the preeminence as head to body. Two ways as we close out. One way his supremacy is communicated is through our relationships. Our relationships. Colossians 2.19 And not holding the head. There are some men in the church who are not holding on to the head which the whole body, by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increase with the increase of God. What is the increase of God? Love. What are we doing with joints and bands? Connecting. What is the connection for? Relationships. The Surgeon General just reported we're in an epidemic of loneliness. Largely because of COVID-19 and social distancing, ironically, has become social distancing. (laughs) Not social anymore. People aren't going back to church. And largely through social media, ironically, is unsocial. Some of the most lonely people on the planet spend all day on their phones. They're not happy. God did not create you to be an island but to be relational. And you'll never find the fulfillment until you become relational church. So we need to grow in that. We are going to show Christ's supremacy in how we relate in church, in family, in marriage. Colossians 3.18 through the end of the book is about family, marriage, work life. We will show and communicate to the world the supremacy of Christ in how we relate to one another, how we forgive one another how we repent, how we love each other, how we serve each other. How are we doing, church? People see us and say, I don't know about their God, but He must be spectacular. These people just serve when they're offended and when it's hard. and, And they offend each other and they repent and forgive and they embrace with tears and hug and they just keep going. That is not natural, is it? That is not worldly. He is the head of the body, which is the church, the beginning, the firstborn. There's the word again, prototokos, which means he ranks as the firstborn from the dead. He wasn't the first person to be raised. He raised people before his own resurrection. It means something commences at his resurrection. That is, his headship over the church begins At his resurrection. And what follows is all the resurrections are the first fruits of them that slept because of his resurrection. And in this relationship of head to body, the body is now relating to one another to show his supremacy. But more importantly, it's how the body relates to the head that's going to show his supremacy. Because without that, the relationships fall apart, they break down, they're just external facades. Unless we're relating rightly to the head, the body to the head, then the relationships are hypocritical, cold, and just going through motions. How do we relate to the head? Verse 19, because it pleased the Father that in Him should all Dwell. Now go back to Christ creating everything for himself, for his pleasure. And now he's the head of the body, the church, believers. Now, when we say that about a human being, we say all their relationships are just for them. It's all for him. We don't mean that good. We mean that every relationship that this person creates, so to speak, gets into, is for self gratification. So he uses every relationship to fill his empty tank called love he's a vacuum she's a vacuum now we mean that in a negative way when we say christ created everything for himself paul doesn't mean that what does he mean he doesn't mean that Christ created you because He's kind of empty in eternity and He needed some fulfillment and so you're going to supply His need. What He means is He created everything for Him, including you, so that you could experience the fullness of who He is. By receiving from the head from which everything is flowing down and the church experiences the fullness that dwells in Him. And out of that fullness, we relate to one another. And what is that fullness but of being satisfied in all that Jesus Christ is? You were created for Him in the sense to show His supremacy by experiencing His fullness, not His emptiness. So you bring your emptiness to the fullness of Christ as the head of the body, and the body with joints and bands begin to supply to one another in all those mutual one another ways that we've been talking about. Without the headship of Christ to the body, without His fullness, we're empty, we're dry, we're cold, we're loveless, and whatever service we do is just human service. Beloved, the supremacy of Christ is going to be shown, shown through the church when we, as the church, are relating to the head in such a way that the whole body is experiencing him more and more of his fullness. More about Jesus, would I know? More of his fullness, the songwriter says. More about Jesus. When we experience more of that fullness and experience that contentment and peace and joy. That we find in our souls, Christ then is being shown, communicated, and seen through the body as what? Surpassing in value. Now he is, and he always will be, but how is he shown? When that fullness comes to dwell, meaning his deity, he is full deity, that fullness of the head comes and begins to supply all the joints and bands, all all the gifts. Through that contentment, we have love. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 1, where he said, He's put all things under his feet and given him to be head over all things to the church, the fullness that is filling all in all. Fullness, like this word, fullness means the, the diffusing aroma. So in Ephesians 1, the church is to diffuse the aroma of Christ everywhere it goes. But in Colossians 1, that doesn't happen until your soul experiences the diffusing aroma of His fullness in being satisfied with Christ, in His redemption, in His power, in His love, in everything we see in the Bible. Then the church, relationally does what? We begin to diffuse the aroma of His glory that surpasses all of the created things in a way... That others, whether they love it or not, whether they join it or not, they see something about the preeminence of Christ. Now, how is it with you this morning? Are you moving forward toward Christ in order to experience more of His light, more of His joy, more of His strength, more of His help, more of what He is? And how would you do that? Through Scripture, through knowing Him, through knowing the light of His presence, through knowing the light of His goodness and the sweet aroma of His grace for you. For all we have received of His fullness, grace for grace for grace. May the Lord bless us to move closer in to that fullness and experience Him in that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your grace and Your mercy and for Your love. Lord, we know that even in looking at these verses, the half has not yet been told. We have not seen but the hem of Your garment through the words of Your supremacy, Your greatness, Your preeminence. And we know there's much more to be known and to be learned forever and ever. So Lord, thank You for redeeming us through the blood of Christ. And Jesus, thank You for shedding Your blood, which means You died to have us. May we see... Even the most powerful things of creation and nature are under your sway. You created them and in every moment you have your way in the whirlwind and in the storm. And the most powerful man on this planet was created the same way as we are and he is held together by your sovereign hand. And Lord, help us to remember that you're all these things on behalf of the church. You're the head of the church and now you have commenced this new gospel age that we live in whereby Christ would be known through the church, experiencing you as the aroma of your presence and fullness. So make that a reality in our hearts. May we pray for it, as Paul prayed in this book. May we ask, may we seek, may we knock, may we find. And the promise is, you will be found, you will answer, you will open to your people. Make this a reality, we pray in Jesus' name.